Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. If you're always stealing goodies from a big department store, you need an analyst, a psychoanalyst. If your pocket's full of little things you never owned before, you need an analyst, a psychoanalyst. If somebody says good morning and politely tips his hat, and you frown and say, I wonder what he really meant by that. If you're walking down the sidewalk and you won't step on a crack, you're afraid if you step on a crack, you'll break your mother's back. If you're at the Philharmonic and you start to do the twist, you need an analyst, a psychoanalyst. You need an analyst, you need an analyst. We really must insist that you see an analyst. I don't think any show anywhere in the globe, really, has done as much to keep the memory of Alan Sherman alive as we do here. But uh, in any case, today we're going to talk about the kind of, if there's such a thing as medicalizing, there's also such a thing as therapizing. And there's a way in which the language we speak about common human relationships, the way we describe our loves, our losses, our frustrations, increasingly relies on terminology developed within the, the therapeutic professions. Now, it's also true that the therapeutic professions, I'm going to argue on this show, have been very liberal in their borrowing from just the common speak, right? The word toxic might be an example. You know, I mean, I don't see toxic as something, if I say they have a toxic relationship, I mean, that's, that's an observation I could make with or without the benefit of whatever existing therapeutic use of that term might be. But I'm not the expert here. we got lots of experts. We're also going to talk a little bit about how later on about how television uh, depictions of therapists um, and, and of therapy influence our ideas about it, our willingness to use it. Um, we'll also talk just basically about what it's like to be a therapist with all these <laughs> expectations ginned up uh, on such places as TikTok. Uh, and there's a lot to unpack here. But here to begin unpacking it with us, uh, I wonder if that's – is that a therapy term? It's a really more of a traveling term, un- unpack. <laughs> I, think, I think it's more traveling-oriented. Uh, Lucy Folks is an academic psychologist at the University of Oxford, author of the book Losing Our Minds, The Challenge of Defining Mental Illness. Welcome to our conversation. Hi. Thanks for having me. So let, let's start at the fundament, which is kind of where you start anyway, uh, which is – uh, there are terms that we might use in common speech that are not exactly therapy terms. They are they are sort of translations of ideas about mental illness. And one of them is crazy, right? I mean, you routinely will say so-and-so is crazy or that's a very, very crazy idea or they have a crazy relationship. But when we use that term, we're sort of invoking some embedded ideas uh, about mental illness and what it is. And just give me some reflections uh, about all of that. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like crazy when used to refer to a person might be one of the words that we're trying to um, 
get rid of in terms of that kind of stigmatizing language might be what got everyone started on this road to trying to uh, better understand mental illness, um, which I think has led to problems, in, including the overuse of, um, you know, medicalized and therapy language that you're interested in. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's very blurred. We sort of inevitably always use sort of psychological terms or terms to do with the mind to refer to all sorts of things. Right. And, I, you know, I mean, another good example. So I remember when my son was about 12 and we were sitting in a restaurant in New York, he and his mother and I, and he looked around and he said, who here is depressed? Um, and the truth was all three of us were <laughs> a little bit depressed uh, for different reasons and in different ways. And, and that's, you know, I mean, that's certainly a term that has been so incorporated into common speech that it has a kind of neutralized meaning. But I guess from your perspective, is is there some hazard there with – because now, you know, I, it's not enough to be depressed. Sometimes you'll go, I'm clinically depressed, <laughs> which, which you're kind of insisting on, on one of the versions of the definition of depressed just because it intensifies it. Once again, your, your thoughts. Yeah, so it's a really good point. So there is, um, you know, depression as a mental um, illness or mental disorder, which is um, – serious and devastating and sometimes fatal um but it's it, there's not a clear binary between people who have that disorder and people who are totally fine you know there's this big gray area there's sort of a thousand gradually changing versions of mood that might mean you end up um with that version of depression which then means if you try to promote the idea that there is this called depression and we should talk about it more and we should reduce the stigma around it, you've unleashed that language into the public domain. And it then means that terms like being depressed are used quite colloquially to cover sort of the entire spectrum and not just those up at the more severe end of it. And I think there are benefits to that in terms of, you know, we all need language to understand and describe how we're feeling but exactly as you say I think it comes at a cost which is that I think potentially those words lose their gravity and sort of lose their value for the people who might need them the most right and and I as you've just suggested I think I think that gray area is an interesting one and in where it's maybe difficult to weigh the harm of watering down or misusing or mischaracterizing a term against the value that you just described. We are trying to understand the world that we're in and 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 the life that we're living and, and the pain that we feel and the excitement that we feel. And it's really not practical to run to a therapist. <laughs> you know, every time one of those questions comes up, we would like to be able to say, wow, a whole bunch of really horrible things happened to me in the last two years. I, I don't feel like the old person I used to be. I'm hypervigilant. I'm this, I'm that. Maybe I have PTSD. I mean... I think you would argue that that's a term that has a very specific meaning and it's a diagnosis and, mm. and maybe we shouldn't use it, but I don't see how we'll ever stop. Yeah. And, and you know, language is changing its meaning all the time, isn't it? It's evolving constantly. So it might just be that we're observing this process of this language being watered down and really there's nothing that can be done about it. Maybe there isn't anything that should be done about it, but I guess as a as an academic, sort of observing all of this, I'm very interested in, yeah, what, is this just a sort of culturally neutral phenomenon or is there actually some problems with this? And if there are, should we at least try and have a conversation about it and suggest that maybe we sort of put on the brakes a little bit? Because I, I, I really feel like there is value in preserving these terms, but it, it's an incredibly difficult thing to try and 
you know, police and 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 that comes with its costs as well, because, you, you know, you don't want to rob people of language that they think is helpful for them. Right. Well, I think you put that so beautifully. Um, and, and I think yeah. a little humility on each side probably makes a certain amount of sense. I mean, I even think about a term like midlife crisis. Midlife crisis, I would say, is a pretty neutralized, generic, non-medical, non-psychiatric term these days. Mm. But mm-hmm. it didn't begin that way. It was introduced at a conference in London in 1957 by a Canadian psychotherapist named Elliot Jacques. Um, and he'd written a paper about it. And he was drawing, I think, on the work of, of Erickson and, and some other you know, great clinicians. And I mean, he does, Erickson doesn't use that term. Jung doesn't use that term. But it's kind of there in the work. But I, mm-hmm. to me, that's sort of a natural progression. It has a clinical meaning. That clinical meaning becomes popularized. And then pretty soon, it's how you describe a guy who bought a sports car on his 45th mm. birthday, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, and it, you can think of so many examples of them. But I, I think it's important to think, yeah, maybe not so much with li- midlife crisis or maybe with that. You know, if if what does it mean when we, t- when we dilute that language? And PTSD is such a good example of it because... Um, PTSD really describes a, a you know a horrific, significant state where your mind and your body and your brain is sort of trapped or locked in the moment uh, that it was in when you experienced you know something horrific and something often where you thought your life was at risk or someone else's life was at risk. Um, so the people who really are experiencing that, you know, once everyone's have PTSD. It's difficult for those people to be heard, you know, when when it, when that term gets so thrown around. And then you get the interesting phenomenon that you described, which is people then say they have clinical, you know, depression or extreme PTSD or severe PTSD. It's like everyone is sh- needs to shout so loudly in order to get the, you know, their own experience taken seriously. Um, but but another interesting thing and and is that it's not like the professionals or the psychologists or the psychiatrists can agree on what PTSD means either. And I guess, you know, someone described, put some boundaries around what midlife crisis might be, but that's also ultimately sort of some professionals' judgment. And actually, if you look at the literature, the meaning of PTSD has changed over the past. Well, it only officially came into existence in the psychiatric literature in the in the 70s as a kind of as a defined concept. And every few years when they rewrite the diagnostic criteria, it gets looser and looser. So more and more things fall under the possible category of being a trauma and therefore uh, of triggering PTSD. These are nebulous, messy concepts, you know, concepts of the mind and behaviour and feelings and that they don't exist as neatly boundary things in nature. And I think that is exactly mirroring what's happening in the public conversation and why this is so messy once you you know, promote people talking about this. Yeah, and I think, um, well, I mean, another really great example of what you just described, I think, is the term passive-aggressive. Now, absolutely everybody mm-hmm. knows or is married to or has a father-in-law <laughs> or something who is passive-aggressive. This is a term that comes out uh, out of clinical language. I think Menninger uh, coins it to talk about I think it maybe first came up in military psychiatry, um, but it kind of made its way uh, into therapeutic parlance, but then it made its way into common speech. Meanwhile, to your point, the DSM-5 no longer uses that. 
Um, and and it's no longer one of the ten personality disorders that's recognized in the DSM five. So, as you're saying, these things are not. It's not like mitral valve prolapse, you know, which has kind of a specific meaning. And either you have it or you don't. It is a lot of these things are historically observed and then discussed, and the discussion never entirely ends uh, about what these words mean, right? Exactly. Uh, so it so it's. I think that's partly why it's so messy once you run a mental health awareness campaign on, um, you know, on billboards and on TVs and on social media saying, you know, we should talk more about PTSD and then you unleash that language. Well, the professionals can't agree on what that means either. You know, there's some people think you should never call a reaction to a trauma a disorder because actually, um, you know, then that sort of locates the the blame within the individual when actually it's it's something you know it's not a sort of biological issue it's an issue within society or within culture so there are endless arguments about what this what these terms mean and it's just it's very interesting to observe those arguments that used to sort of happen behind closed doors are now happening everywhere including online and the sort of trend is that they're becoming milder and milder and milder so what this an academic in um australia nick haslam refers to as constant creep so lots of these words like uh, trauma or bullying or mental illness um they're just they're expanding and expanding and you can sort of see it documented in uh in the literature right although i think there's once again room for humility on the therapy side on the actual professional clinical therapist side here i was listening to another conversation about this actually i think it's was on a show called The Conversation, hosted by, hosted by Audie Cornish, and she was asking the therapist some examples of you know so-called therapy speech that have worked their way into common language. And three of the examples that they used were gaslighting, trigger, and boundaries. Well, gaslighting is an Ingrid Bergman movie, right? That's who thought up gaslighting. It wasn't thought up by you know by Eric Erickson or somebody like that. Uh, and yeah, to me, trigger and boundaries, those are words that have a generic meaning that, in mm -hmm. fact, the maybe the, the psychotherapeutic establishment started to attach a specific meaning to it. But the idea that that triggered my fear or that triggered my ang anger or so, that that's me encroaching on therapeutic language, I actually feel like just a little bit of the reverse. When I hear therapists say, well, no, boundaries is one of our words. We get to use boundaries. Mm. You don't. I'm thinking, who died and made you god of boundaries? Mm. I, I, you know, I, to me, there needs to be a little humility on both sides. Yeah, you're right. And it's it's almost, well, it's possibly even just a waste of time to try and um, take these words back again once they've changed their meaning. Because, yeah, as I say, you know, language does just naturally evolve and no one no one owns them so yeah i think it's it's and you certainly can't take away words from people without replacing them with something else useful you know people use this psychiatrized language and this terminology because it is helpful to them you know it helps them understand themselves and it helps them communicate what's going on to other people so it's not useful to just sort of wag your finger and say no no, no that's my term or you're misusing it you can't use it anymore without you know respecting and validating what's going on in some other way and and you know offering a sort of alternative way of talking about it. I think actually something you said earlier was really useful, but what you said about, you know, the last two years has been really difficult. You know, actually, we could just talk about things like that without necessarily needing to say, and therefore I might have PTSD, you know, mm. but you certainly, I don't think anyone's going to get anywhere buying people 
policing and sort of yeah being too judgmental about the use of this terms and you often you know you see an awful lot of this online about you know I saw a a TikTok video the other day of someone saying they one thing that's really helpful when they're depressed is that they put lilac eyeshadow on before they go to the gym and the responses were you know well that's my impression looks like and you know good for you but I need antidepressants or I can't even get out of bed so you get it all gets quite territorial um there's a lot of yeah judgment and of the use of this language and I yeah I, I guess it's got to think really carefully about what's useful about moving weight moving conversation forward but also actually helping people suffering and struggling to understand themselves and and to talk about what's going on to other people that's kind of the ultimate goal for everyone I think yes I, I just would just in, interject and this is maybe an irrelevant thing except I think here in this country it is because we have a dysfunctional healthcare system we have a different kind of dysfunctional healthcare system than other countries but one of the things I have First of all, real, I'm kind of an expert in going to therapists. I've gone to many, many therapists. Uh, and I've had therapists say, as they fill out a form or check a box or something, you know, that has a DSM term on it, mm. I've probably been through probably three or four editions of the DSM <laughs> during mm. my life as a therapy patient. I've had a therapist say, I'm checking these boxes because the insurance company needs something. I don't really necessarily think you have adult adjustment disorder, but I got to mm. say something here. <laughs> and, and, and so there's that overlay too, that there's a way in which therapists, as pure as they might want to be, are often mm. not as free to stick to their own judgments uh, about clinical diagnoses because there's at least a third and probably a fourth party involved here uh, in, in the form of how you pay for things. Yeah, and it's certainly, yeah, particularly true in the US that, the, that you know, a, a code is needed in order for things to get um, paid for and validated. And often, I mean, in the UK, in the NHS, um, particularly in terms of therapy, there might not ever be any discussion of what disorder the, the therapist thinks that you have, because they're not particularly interested in that, you know, clinical psychologists in particular in the UK, they, they're, they're more formulation-based in terms of they sort of try and understand why the person is feeling how they are, how they are but without necessarily to, needing to sort of collect a specific set of symptoms and label it in a particular way. But you're, you're absolutely right that when, um, when insurance is involved, then a sort of diagnostic code is needed. But yeah, there is this sort of slight disinterest, I think, from some therapists who thinks it's, it's a bit overly simplistic put people in those boxes, which I think is is very fair enough. You know, there's sort of a um, an obviously vulnerable and confused population, I think, in the form of teenagers. We've all been teenagers, most of us. And, you know, we, you don't understand yourself very well. You're looking for ways to understand yourself. You know you're going through roiling emotions, some of which might mm-hmm. be just endemic to being a teenager, uh, others of which really might present significant problems. You often feel as though you're not well understood by the adult world. Um, And increasingly, you have places to go, like TikTok, where you could get some highly unreliable information. Um, And and so it must be this whole conversation that we're having right now uh, must be for a 15-year-old boy or girl you know, especially fraught. Like, how how do I understand how I'm feeling right now? Do I use this language that seems very specific to the world of mental health or don't I? 
Yeah, and I, I'm, I, the work I do um, that I'm particularly interested in is about um, all this conversation playing out on teenagers and the impact that it's having on them. I mean, yeah, it's a period of identity development, as you say, when people are trying to understand who they are. Uh, it's a period of, you know, even um, if you don't end up having any significant mental health problems, it's just a period of, you know, psychological turmoil and uh, extreme moods and emotions. And then there's the added element now of the sort of social influence component to this. So I was asked the other day in a talk, has it now become cool for a teenager to have anxiety or depression? And uh, someone else said to me that their teenage daughter felt left out because she was the only one in her peer group Um you know, who wasn't, you know, saying she, that she had anxiety or depression. So this, so this element of these terms being such, so the standard way of understanding adolescence now that it that it's actually, there might even be some social value to using them in terms of being accepted by your peers and your kind of, you know, because belonging to your peer group is, is everything in adolescence, isn't it? So there's all of that going on. And I think we aren't thinking about all of, yeah, this sort of cultural shift in language as a partial explanation for why rates of mental health problems seem to be increasing in adolescents. I don't think it's the entire explanation. I think there's a lot of factors. But I think one reason why more teenagers are now reporting mental health problems is exactly what you say, is that, um, you know, they're trying to understand them and, and they're, personality and their psychology and this is the framework that are being given now yeah i think the danger is that some things certain things become fads i think you're kind of suggesting this i mean there was a period of time where it was almost a badge of honor if you were an adolescent to have a lexapro prescription um you know there was this kind of sense i mean within a certain community this might not be true if i grew up in a small bible belt town uh in the southern united states but you know in new upper west side of new york yeah, you, you, there is that idea. Uh, and, and the problem is it kind of goes back to the some of the first things we talked about and we're kind of wrapping up here, I forgot to say. But you know, if you're going to call everything a midlife crisis, you're robbing the word crisis of its actual meaning. And there's a way in which if, if in fact you feel left out because you're the only person in your peer group without a diagnosis – Somehow or other, something is getting not – it's good that there's enough acceptance of, of psychiatric problems and mental health problems that people feel comfortable having them. <laughs> but that shouldn't mean, mean that it's a kind of outfit that you try on. Well, that's what I'm re really interested in. Like, So sti being stigmatized is obviously a bad thing and we want to move away from something being stigmatized. We're actually overshooting and moving so far away from stigma with some of these problems, particularly anxiety, that we actually might be moving into the territory of it being socially desirable. Now that there's very little sort of evidence on this yet, this is what I'm trying to investigate over the next few years, but I think it's a serious possibility. And it, and it comes, you know, at least some of the time, and it comes back to what I said at the beginning, which is that if everyone then says they have anxiety or believes they have anxiety or depression. What about the people who really do? You know, the ones because the, you know, adolescence is when these problems tend to start, if they're ever going to start. And they are serious, 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 sometimes fatal problems when they do happen. So some people putting their hand up and saying they have these problems really are seriously unwell and need to be taken seriously and need that language to have, you know, gravity and um be taken seriously. So so 
my concern in all of this and why I'm so motivated to have these conversations, even if it's really difficult, is to sort of make sure those young people, those adults, are still being heard. Because really the whole reason we started talking about all this and promoting the idea of talking more about this was to help those people. And I worry that they're, they've actually ironically ended up being a little bit lost now. That's a beautiful and subtle way to describe it. That was so great. Uh, Lucy, folks, we have to go. I would stay a little bit longer, but uh, my producer, Lily Tyson, <laughs> says it's over. And she's kind of OCD. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Lucy, folks, is an academic psychologist at the University of Oxford and the author of the book, Losing Our Minds, The Challenge of Defining Mental Illness. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk a little bit more about this on The Therapist's End. Or am I losing Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. My analyst told me that I was right out of my head The way he described it He said I'd be better dead than live I didn't listen to his jive I knew all along That he was all wrong And I knew that he thought I was crazy but I'm not Don't know My analyst told me all right, we're going to continue with this conversation and continue the conversation with Jessica Gold, an assistant professor and director of wellness, engagement, and outreach in the Department of Psychiatry at Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. Uh, she works clinically as an outpatient psychiatrist, writes about mental health for a variety of general uh, audience publications. Um, you know, I don't usually do this, but I'm informed by the producer that you heard the, f the first segment here. and. Maybe I would just ask you if you had any particular reaction or set of reactions to it or to that Joni Mitchell song, for for that matter. <laughs> I did. Thank you for having me. I was listening. It was really interesting. I always like hearing other people's perspectives and their work on the issue. I mean, I think one of the things you mentioned that I would maybe add to is you said that 
it's kind of like who owns the words and maybe some of the words came from not therapy and then were expanded into therapy. And I actually think that's the patient's own doing. Like it's not necessarily that we are taking words like boundaries and saying that's only for mental health disorders. But I think that when patients start using them, especially on social media, they want it to have like a mental health diagnosis with it. So it's almost like they're taking the word and medicalizing it. And so because of that, we feel the need to then kind of own what that definition means. And so it's kind of like a weird feedback loop that way, I think. Yeah, no, feedback loop is the right way to put it. And it's kind of hard to figure out even where exactly the loop starts in some uh, instances. Um, for example, <laughs> not that I really knew anything about this, but I was it was insisted that I must know about this, that apparently Jonah Hill was using maybe some clinical terms in a very public way and it got on social media uh, to a woman, had used it to a woman he'd been involved with and as part of their breakup. And we became publicly involved in this somehow. Uh, and But then it's very easy to go from there to a podcast hosted by somebody called Dear Clementine, whose whose therapeutic credentials are not ever really spelled out. Uh, And she might be citing somebody named Therapy Jeff on TikTok, who I looked looked up and he's a licensed counselor somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. I don't really know what that means. But there's also, I mean, in that feedback loop, and, 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 and one of those two people used a term that I didn't know called DARVO, which I now know. (laughs) <laughs> but that in that feedback feedback loop, there are all kinds of people who are participating, right? Some of, there might be some people like you have some real credentials and knowledge. There might be some just lay people who are looking for help or trying to understand. And then there's this middle group of people who I I think find it you know useful and profitable to pretend to some kind of expertise here. Yes, that's a complicated loop, too, because people might argue that in certain situations, like romantic situations or friends or family, that the words can be weaponized. And that's even more complicated because it's not just using them to use them. It's using them because of what that meaning means to the other person or what it means to you about the other person. And so I think that has led to the sort of expansion of this conversation lately, for sure. And it's really hard as a young person watching all this stuff and absorbing all this stuff to know who you can trust and who actually has information because they have seen patients or have read the books or whatever you count as credentials, gone to school for as many years as I've gone to school. Um, But I think it's hard for people just scrolling through TikTok, for example, to know like when I stop on this, is that person correct? Or is that person just talking and I should believe them because they have a lot of followers? Yeah. And I I would imagine that that therefore creates uh, an unusual, not unprecedented. I should precede this by saying before there was social media, there was a time before there was social media, you know, but there were people like Gail Sheehy was not a licensed clinician or anything like that. She was basically a journalist who made it a point to try to understand the ideas of people like Eric Erickson and then translate those ideas into books like Passages. It's also true that I no doubt a number of very, very legitimate clinicians learned the term codependency from Melody Beattie, who had been an alcoholic and I think an addict and you know, wrote a, a book that sold 8 million copies and really kind of introduced the word codependency to the world, probably including some clinicians. But, but I guess for you, I'm wondering, so do people come into the office and between TikTok and what they've seen on, on Max, uh, you know, <laughs> in the latest installment of In Treatment or something, do they already have an idea of what's wrong with them? And what do you do about them? You, you don't want to di- immediately disabuse them of that idea. How do you, talk, how do you yeah. deal with those pre-expectations? 
For sure. I think I see a kind of skewed population for this. So I see college students and I also see healthcare workers. So I'll focus on college students because I think this most impacts them. And then I'll just give you an anecdote on a healthcare worker mm-hmm. and is like a parallel. But for college kids, you know, if they come in and they say, I was watching these TikTok videos, I have this diagnosis, I'm not a person who's going to just dismiss that completely because they took the step of not just wanting to learn more about themselves, but wanting to learn more about themselves and actually seeking help for it. So I see my job as filling in the gaps, as helping them understand how like a 60 minute video or 60 second video is incomplete, right? What's missing in that? A lot of people have been coming in thinking that they have ADHD um, or OCD or trauma from TikTok. And it's a lot of conversations about what symptoms resonate, what symptoms might be because of another disorder, why I can't just automatically say you have something because you think you do because of a TikTok algorithm. And I think we have these like really good conversations about it for the most part. I think there are people who come in convinced that's true. And if you tell them it's any other way, it can feel invalidating, like you're not listening to them. And I think they've probably seen videos that explain invalidation, which just probably makes it even worse. (laughs) But they come and they say, well, you're not listening to me. You don't believe me. You're invalidating my experience. And those conversations are a lot harder because I'm pretty much in a lose-lose situation there. Like there's not much I can say to say, well, I think I'm right. I'm not going to give you a stimulant because TikTok told you so. Let's have a conversation. But I try really hard not to be dismissive when I'm doing all of my practice. And I think it's just approaching that with an open mind and realizing that really what people are doing is looking for information to explain what's going on with themselves. And if that's what brought them to me, that's great. I think in healthcare workers, it's completely different because if they know a diagnosis, it's probably because they learned it in school. And so I'm a little bit more I don't know, I guess, open to the idea that they could be completely right because they have all the diagnostic criteria in their head. But it's not like I would dismiss a college student and not dismiss a healthcare worker. I just might approach it a bit differently. Yes. And I mean, you know, infamously, medical students decide disease by disease that they have these diseases as they're learning about them. Oh, yes, for Uh, sure. And I don't remember half of what I learned. So a lot of the times I'll say, well, do you guys remember what that was? And they'll say, oh, I have no idea what that is. Re-explain it to me. But if you know about a thing, it's pretty easy to imagine that you have it. Uh, But I think back to the college students, too, you know, it sort of goes back to what Lucy and I were talking about. It's it's frightening to be an adolescent and not understand some of the emotional reactions you're having or whatever's going on. And, and probably there is for some people a comfort in having a name, you know, having a name for something. I've got this. I've got that. You know, I mean, some of the names are kind of scary and maybe a little bit feel a little bit damning. But, you know, in a way, maybe when they're coming into you, when they don't want to be invalidated, part of it is I finally felt like I understood what was happening. And they identify with a community a lot of times too. So they might have felt like they were the only person experiencing whatever. And then when they get the label and they start exploring that, there are so many more people experiencing that. So they not only like are not alone, they found a whole group of people who's this who's similar, right? So if you take away that label, you're also taking away not just like an identity, but a community. So another thing that happens, uh, and it happened really pretty drastically and extremely uh, in between, say, 2017 and 2021, just a arbitrarily pick four years, uh, is, uh, the, first of all, the invocation of something called the Goldwater Rule. That is basically, well, you should explain what the Goldwater Rule is. 
So the Goldwater rule is, is an ethics rule in psychiatry that basically was decided by the APA, the American Psychiatric Association. And it means that we can't diagnose somebody without seeing them. So I can't just armchair diagnose somebody because of something they said on TV or something that they've even said themselves. I have to be able to see them and meet with them and have them as a patient in order to diagnose them. Right. So during the Trump administration... <laughs> <laughs> um, there was, on the other hand, uh, a feeling, and the, the feeling extended to people who were actual practitioners uh, of psychiatry and psychotherapy, uh, eventually led uh, by uh, Dr. Bandy Lee. Uh, they formed something called the Duty to Warn Conference uh, in 2017 at Yale University. Um, and she, she argued, Bandy Lee argued that this was kind of a gag order, that in fact, uh, the Goldwater Rule had its had its merits and had its reasons for existing and really did constitute a canon of ethics. On the other hand, you've got a lot of people with a lot of psychiatric and psychotherapeutic expertise looking at the erratic behavior of a person <laughs> in a position to drastically influence the fate of the world and that it didn't make sense to say you can't diagnose Donald Trump because you've never seen him as a patient. And this actually turned into a book I think that has subsequently been revised and expanded. I think it's 37 psychotherapists describe you know, Know, their reactions to, to, to Donald Trump. So that's a, it's an interesting thing too, right? Because there's a way in which when something becomes big enough and pervasive enough, like a presidency, there and there is a sense like, well, why deprive us of possible wisdom available from Robert J. Lifton or somebody? I, I don't know. React to that. I understand in some cases where they're coming from, but I actually think that the the at its core, the Goldwater rule makes a lot of sense. Disclosure-wise, I'm in the APA, so I don't want you to think that I'm not speaking from some kind of, you know, somewhat skewed opinion. But I do think that as a psychiatrist, if we assume that we can diagnose everybody just by seeing them like on TV, it takes away our expertise in some capacity. I also think that warning someone that somebody is full of hate or that somebody has a prejudice or that somebody is dangerous is not the same as warning somebody about a mental illness and actually conflating them is really dangerous. We see that a lot with mass shootings, right? Like the immediate conversation is always about mental illness. And if you look at the data, people who are mentally ill are more likely to be the victims than the perpetrators. But you wouldn't know if you listen to the news, the news would tell you it's always mental illness. It's a mental illness. Let's fix mental illness. And yet they don't do anything to fix mental illness either. But what you learn from that is that like somebody who does behavior that we don't understand needs to have a label, needs to be mental illness, because that's the only way that people can do behavior that we don't understand that we might not do or that is dangerous. And I think that is a dangerous thing to conflate, like all behavior we don't understand, all hate hatred is mental illness. And so that's why I do think like having the pause, stepping back and saying, like, I actually don't know that person. I can't diagnose them from what I'm seeing. I can tell you what hate might look like, but I can't tell you that person has this diagnosis is really important. Right. Actually, I have had that almost exact that exact conversation with gun lobby people uh, at the state capitol where I live. I, up there, I'm up there covering, you know, a hearing on on new gun laws, and there are these guys doing kind of open carry and walking around looking kind of menacing, <laughs> and they'll say this is all a mental health problem. And so I say, so when there's a legislative debate about funding for public health initiatives that involve mental health, you guys will be back up here, right, with your guns and stuff to make sure that. 
they get the money for it. And they look at me very blankly like, what are you talking about? This is just a gambit we were using. So yes, I'm, I'm with you all the way on that. Um, so last question, because we're about to segue into a conversation more about depictions of therapists on television. Uh, this is goes on all the time. <laughs> it goes back to Bob Newhart. It goes back to Tony Soprano. But lately, uh, you know, there's more nuanced ones, a program like In Treatment or I think a lot of people, when they met Dr. Sharon Fieldstone on Ted Lasso, thought, I want that therapist right there. That's me. I'm Ted Lasso. I want that person. I don't know. How does that affect your profession when there are these you know, the depictions of therapists? I think there are some good things and some bad things about it. So as a psychiatrist, we're very rarely depicted unless it's in a horror movie and people are <laughs> on inpatient psychiatry. So there's not a lot of conversation around medication. I wish there was more. But from just the therapy perspective, I think Ted Lasso does a good job with intro conversations. Like, why is this 50 minutes instead of 60? And there's a bit of humor around it. But I think those are questions that a lot of people have at home and are wondering from home. And it might prevent them from getting help because they don't understand it. So being in a character that you might relate to allows you to then say, okay, maybe I could do that. Or maybe I do have those symptoms and I should get help too. So I think there's a benefit to that. I wish that every therapist that they showed didn't sleep with their patients. Um, <laughs> there are lots of rules about that. And I think boundary violations are just all over the place in television and movies with therapists. And if you're somebody who's like at home with a mental health condition, or you've had your trust violated by your family or friends in some capacity, it is really scary to then think I could go to a therapist and they're going to hit on me or something. And so I think that part needs to not be there and definitely can scare people from getting help or really feeling comfortable in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone they've never met. Yeah. I mean, I would do want to say Dr. Melfi never slept with Tony and she put him on Lexapro. <laughs> so there. Um, okay. So, the Sopranos well, is probably one of the best ones that there yeah. is actually. Or you might have, he, I guess he was on Prozac, but same same difference. Um, yeah. So I, I, I should break right down, but I just want to sort of bring up one thing, which is I think there's another way in which – so Dr. Sharon on Ted Lasso is a very interesting example because, yes, as you say, a lot of the resistance to therapy that people have, uh, uh, acts through all of that and then they, you know, make whatever progress they make. But there's an interesting little part nearer to the end of the series where she has a bicycle accident and then she's having trouble getting back on her bicycle and she shares some of her fear and vulnerability with him. Uh, and I think at the end of the series, she gives him this letter that he initially refuses to read. But she's, then she goes, no, it's in the letter. I learned from you that sharing some of my own vulnerabilities can make me an even better therapist. And I'm not sure every therapist – I've certainly been to a lot of traditional kind of black box, you should pardon the expression, therapists <laughs> who didn't want me to know anything about them. They didn't want me to see them in the grocery store. Um, I mean, I don't think it's – I thought that was an interesting kind of almost a gauntlet thrown down. Like, really? That's a good idea to show your patient how scared you are? Depends on how it's used and with with what patient. We're definitely still taught to basically be a blank slate, and I disagree with that in a lot of ways because I do think that people can learn from knowing more about you and knowing you're human. I've talked about being on medication myself. I've talked about going to therapy myself. Any of those, any of my patients can find any of that, and it's been brought up to me a couple times, and it's not negative. And so I do think it's a selective thing. It's up to the provider if they like to practice that way, but I think it can help certain patients, and certainly the younger ones appreciate it a lot. Yeah. I, that's a great, uh, terrific answer. Jessica Gold, a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Assistant Professor and Director of Wellness Engagement and Outreach in the Department of Psychiatry at Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. Uh, we're going to take a little break here. We're going to talk very specifically about television, about who you see on television, sitting in that seat, giving therapeutic help. And that's not a good thing. I'm not trying. 
We are back. Time to say thank you to Cat Pastor, our terrific technical producer. Uh, Lily Tyson is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, uh, and she's the producer of this episode. I was just kidding before when I said she had OCD. She has like a lot of things going on, but that just doesn't happen to be one of them. Um, all right. So we're going to talk finally here uh, about television itself. We learn a lot about life, or we think we learn a lot about life when we watch television. Uh, here to shed some light on that uh, is Ingu Kang, uh, television critic at The New Yorker. Uh, they had kind of a, a, coll- a colloquy uh, on The New Yorker website uh, talking about well, all the depictions of, of therapy on television, uh, she and some other critics and writers. So first of all, welcome to our conversation. Hi, thanks for having me. So, um, you know, I'm older than almost everybody I ever talked to, so I, I, <laughs> I, I do remember Bob Newhart introducing the idea, uh, you know, uh, of being a psychiatrist. I don't think he's the first psychiatrist depicted on television, but he may be the first one to sort of carry a whole season, a whole whole series uh, in a role like that. That's a comedy. Frasier is a comedy. I don't particularly like psychiatrists who have radio shows. <laughs> um, but um, I don't know, maybe talk a little bit about that. Sort of there's a way in which we get a comfort level anyway with the idea if we see it a lot on television. Yeah, I think uh, maybe the most uh, salient example, honestly, that it ex- that exists in pop culture in terms of TV's power is the will and grace effect. I think even like Joe Biden has talked in the past about how um, having, you know, these LGBTQ characters in his living room, like on a weekly basis for, you know, that show ran 10 years. It really uh, helped change a lot of people's minds. Uh, And I do think that this uh, rise in therapy or therapy scenes on television that we've really, really seen in like the last 10 years um, has really correlated with a huge destigmatization of mental illness and of getting treatment. Um, and so, you know, before you were talking about how therapy's most uh, prominent examples happen in the comedy world, I think the Sopranos really turned that around. And I think one of the really, one of the very best things that the Sopranos did was to really take seriously the idea of uh, therapy as this self-narrativization project, right? Like you're telling a story about yourself and it may be true and it may not be true, or maybe it's partially true. And I think that narrative ambiguity that like play with the truth is something that that show really did really fantastically. And I think the shows that have come after it, some of them have really gone that route and some of them have just sort of reverted back to like a, you know, therapy is just like a way that we can very quickly and very cheaply show the show the audience that the main character has is on a path towards self-improvement. Right. Just we should hear a little bit of that just to refresh people's memory. Uh, here's uh, Tony Soprano by played by James Gandolfini and of course Dr. Melfi uh, played by Lorraine Bracco, who by the way also voiced a therapist uh, on BoJack Horseman, which I actually think has some very interesting therapy scenes, but we don't have time to talk about BoJack Horseman. Here's The Sopranos. My understanding from Dr. Cusimano, your family physician, is that you collapsed, possibly a panic attack. You were unable to breathe. They said it was a panic attack. Of course, all the uh, blood work and the neurological work came back negative. And they sent me here. You don't agree that you had a panic attack? How are you feeling now? Good. Fine. 
Back at work. What line of work are you in? Waste management consultant. Look, it's impossible for me to talk to a psychiatrist. Any thoughts at all on why you blacked out? I don't know. Stress, maybe. So, so, and of course, that's all. There's a, layers and layers to that, including the fact that you know, she's under a vow of, uh, you know, of confidentiality. He's under a vow she could barely even imagine. Um, <laughs> although I think also a thing that that does really well that we've seen in other places, including in treatment, is showing the therapist therapist. She goes to a therapist and talks about this really complicated patient. I believe her therapist was played by Peter Bogdanovich. But there, there's that. I guess I'm really we're really short on time, and I'm so sorry. We're just I didn't manage the clock that well, but I. I do feel we're seeing maybe new waves of more subtle kinds of depictions of therapists. I would put, I don't know if you would, Dr. Sharon Fieldstone from Ted Lasso into that category. I would say both of the people who've played leads on In Treatment, which is a show about therapy. It's not an intervention into a different plot the way therapy sometimes is. You know, I, I feel like there's some real subtlety and nuance to some of these depictions. Sure. Um, I mean, just on the personal no, as a critic, in treatment as like a show, I find very hard to watch because it feels so actorly, so theatrical. Mm -hmm. And so like the only thing that I can ever feel like watching that show is like, oh, I mean, like, congratulations on your Emmy reel, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think like there's a new gold standard right now uh, in terms of therapy depictions on TV uh, on a reality show uh, called Couples Therapy. You really sit in on, you know, that's heavily edited, but still genuine therapy sessions uh, with one specific therapist who works with everyone. Uh, there was a new season that came out this particular, I think, in the spring. And that was sort of like a really wonderful season as well, especially if you love therapy on therapy action because she really had a hard time with several of her clients. So one of them was just so resistant. And then another one really forced her to consider her own positionality as an Israeli-American vis-a-vis these uh, really traumatized uh, Arab queer youngsters, I guess. I mean, they're in their 20s, but like they sound very, very young. And one of them is of Palestinian origin. And she really, and they have sort of had like a whole conversation about like whether their ethnic identities between the patient and the doctor were going, what's going to be an issue in some way. Is there any sort of like benefit in wow. that particular relationship? I have to interrupt and say, I, I'm, and I'm first of all, very sorry, I haven't seen that. That sounds fascinating. And second of all, unfortunately, we're out of time, but Inku Kang, a television critic at The New Yorker for more, read uh, We Have Reached Peak Therapy TV in The New Yorker, July 12th. Uh, of this year. We've got to leave right now. Thanks to everybody who helped out.